HIV AIDS has reached an existential moment. As COVID-19 continues to pose geopolitical risks, there is a threat that the progress made over the past 40 years in the fight to end the AIDS pandemic will be undone. COVID-19 has exacerbated social and economic inequalities, placed further stress on weak health systems, and highlighted the urgent need to strengthen global health security. In managing these dual pandemics, the global health community must adapt, protect, and integrate approaches to sustain momentum toward ending HIV-AIDS while continuing to respond to COVID-19. In this podcast, we speak to experts, community leaders, and people living with HIV about the progress toward reaching the new targets outlined in the 2021 Political Declaration on HIV and AIDS, the current geopolitical climate, why it is important to continue prioritizing HIV-AIDS, and what can be done to strengthen health security in low- and middle-income countries. This is AIDS Existential Moment. Hello, and welcome to a new episode. I'm Catherine Bliss with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center, and it's my pleasure today to be joined by Eamon Murphy, Deputy Executive Director for Programs at UNAIDS the Joint United Nations Program on HIV-AIDS. We are meeting in Montreal, Canada, where the 24th International AIDS Conference is underway. And it's been an intense few days of pre-conference gatherings, plenary sessions, workshops, and of course, all kinds of side meetings as policymakers, researchers, advocates, and activists come together to talk about the state of the HIV-AIDS epidemic and what needs to happen now to reach global goals related to HIV prevention, diagnosis, and treatment. Amen. welcome. And thank you for taking time out of this very busy conference to chat with me. So the new UN AIDS report was released this week in advance of the International AIDS Society meetings. So I wanted to ask you to say a little bit about the title. Why is it called In Danger? And what message are you and your colleagues really hoping to reinforce as this mix of the research policy and advocacy community gathers to discuss the current state of the epidemic and, and future directions? Well, thanks very much, Catherine, for having me with you. It's a really important question to start with. The title wasn't chosen casually. It's about sending a very clear message. We have some great progress in the AIDS response. And if we only focus on progress, and not look at the risks that are occurring and the very real setbacks to the response, then we are being called out. One of the things I've really been appreciative of is the number of our partners, and they're coming from academia, from governments, from community, across the spectrum in the conference, we're so pleased we've actually sounded the alarm because they're seeing it at the front line. We have some really strong programs like the US government's PEPFAR program, but we're also seeing an erosion of domestic investment. We're seeing a complacency in responses. We're seeing rising numbers of new infections in places we had had strong responses and decline. So you've got a mix that's going on. We have regions like Eastern Europe, Central Asia, fastest growing epidemic in the world. Other regions um, like Latin America, Caribbean, and um, parts of it are really seeing a rise in infections. Even in Asia Pacific, where I've worked for most of my 20 year career, uh, we're seeing rising epidemics and if you like new epidemics in countries like the Philippines and others that's causing a change in the trajectory to the epidemic there as well. So we needed to sound that alarm. 
on a whole range of fronts that investment, and we, we know the impact of COVID on domestic budgets and health budgets, we know now the impact that's already starting to be seen of the war in the invasion of Ukraine and what that's causing. And that flow-on effect is just going to compound to the pressures on domestic budgets. We know where the debt repayments and how much that is, 171%, compared to what the investments are in the health budgets and the pressures that's putting off. Because we're all asking for increased domestic ownership of the responses and sustainability. So we've got many of the right tools and right approaches and new innovations in prevention, treatment and testing, but they're not getting implemented to the scale to have the impact in some places. And great response Eastern Southern Africa, but it's stalling. And, and partly that's compounded by COVID, but separate to COVID, there were already signs of stalling. Yet we've also had great increases in enrolments in treatment in Western Central Africa in the same time frame. So you see, we've got the dynamics of Great progress, at the same time stalling or rising new infections, which is causing impact. So there's a number of indices there. So I wanted to ask you, you know, about this. I mean, as you've mentioned, in some regions, you know, even before the pandemic, HIV infection rates are starting to rise a little bit, even before uh, 2020. But also the report points out that even during these periods of lockdown, quarantine, and kind of this diversion of resources to pandemic response, some countries continue to make significant progress. I think Tanzania was, was one of the countries, the Caribbean, it's maybe a region where there was you know, some notable progress. And I you know, just wanted to ask, what explains this in the context of this crisis? And are there lessons from those countries or those regions that can be perhaps be adopted or, or at least shared with the countries that by and large, at least according to the report, have really been struggling? It's a fascinating dynamic, but it goes to the heart of public health approach in some of these countries, you know, and where have they placed their leadership commitments in action? Good example of countries that you mentioned, but also COVID impact in different parts of the world was not the same, right? And despite COVID impacts quite severe in a country like Thailand, you're seeing them continue to invest in the right mix of approaches for a response. So they now have in their public health funding, funding to civil society organizations to deliver service enshrined in legislation and in practice. In Tanzania, the parts of the Caribbean, it's the investment in government, it's the change in legislation, because one of the fascinating sessions I've just left, actually, was talking about epidemic transition, epidemic controls, another term, right? And that's not a one-year out- outcome, right? You don't get a tick and it's all over. It's how do you sustain the response? You can't just look at treatment and testing by itself, right? You have to be looking at what are those areas that are causing people not to go into testing? In some countries, you've got 80% testing rates, but there's still a big gap of people, and that can explode if you're not looking at it. We saw Ambassador Burks, who was then heading up the PEPFAR program, and she was in a meeting talking about the Philippines. She said, actually, you've got two epidemics going on. You've got an epidemic everyone's happy with, the trajectory, and then you've got a brand new epidemic that has grown without attention, and it became the fastest rising epidemic in the world. Young men a whole different generation or a different population than was being addressed by the first. So you've got a mix of things going well in places like Nigeria. Amazing improvement during COVID in treatment coverage. That's a great success. It needs to be sustained and we need to have the right mix. And then the enabling environment work, the inequalities part, and that's why the global aid strategy is so strong in that, and the political declaration, which governments have committed to. That includes the targets on inequalities. And this is an area that 
hasn't got the equal balance. And that's what that session was talking about. How do we look at the complementary roles? So the legislation change in Antigua Barbados is part of it. If you're changing the whole environment that people are living within, they're more likely to go to a health service. So um, when you talk about legislative change, you're talking about decriminalizing. De decriminalization is one. Use. Yeah. Yeah. Decriminalization around sexual identity or who people love or drug use reforms. That's happened in a, a number of countries as well in the same period. And yet we've seen a rising conservatism in others. And so that's the balance. And that's why those who have institutionalized the right public health approach, even despite the knocks of COVID, are able to maintain. And there's a diverse range of countries in that mix. And that's the, the optimism for us, that it can be done. And it's not the wealthy countries or the better resource infrastructure countries alone. It's a whole mix of countries that can have that positive change. Well, I want to focus on one of these particularly vulnerable populations that the report really suggests have been particularly challenged over the course of the pandemic, and that's adolescent girls and young women. It's a pretty grim picture uh, that comes out of the report. High rates of infection over the course of the pandemic. And I just wanted to ask you to say a little bit about why this particular group is so vulnerable. I know there have been a number of pilot programs and scaled up programs to, to really support adolescent girls and young women. How did those fare over the course of the pandemic in particular? And what, as we think about, you know, there have been a number of sessions focused on better integration of a focus on gender into program design, implementation, and, and also just evaluation. How can that help young girls and, and women protect themselves in the face of the broader challenges, not just of HIV, but COVID-19 and, and the crises that we're facing? Well, again, this is where the intersection of the issues around inequalities is really at the heart of this. If we look in sub-Saharan Africa, we're still a region with the most affected by HIV. Adolescent girls and young women are 75% more likely to acquire HIV than adolescent boys and young men. And what is that telling us about it? And what are the risks for them? We also know if a girl finishes school, we can reduce her risk of acquiring HIV by half, by 50%. So that's an inequality that needs to be addressed to complement what you're trying to achieve on a health issue. So that's the right to education. It's a right to a determination in their life. Often their first encounters with sex are forced or sex that they didn't want to have. Right? So there's a power dynamic as well and abuse in society. These are all different issues that have to be addressed if we're looking at a disease issue. And so it goes back to your earlier question about why some countries are doing better. If you're investing in gender-based violence, if you're investing in girls' education, if you're investing in boys' education so that they understand norms and behaviours right? and changing Right? We have to do the complementary part, but we need to protect the girls in, in, in this area. And that's why we have highlighted in the global strategy, they are equal in terms of importance as a group that are vulnerable to HIV, not just key populations that have been the, the norm that are referred to. So this is also understanding the dynamics in societies and where epidemics are moving. It's the data. And that's why this report is so important. It shows the richness of data that's available to understand the epidemics better, to see what are the determinants we need to address and issues of inequalities at, at the heart across this. So girls' access to education can reduce their acquisition of risk of acquisition by 50%. That's a significant area. And that's why there's such a call to invest in education that empower them to be able to take more control in their lives. So keeping girls in school, uh, providing them with access to water, sanitation, 
law reform is going to have to be part of it because it's about the gender norms and, and gender power dynamics in society. And men have to understand their responsibilities and understand the rights of women in, in society. So that's also a major cultural change uh, issue. So, and again, that's outside the health system, but it's a system for health that needs to be addressed if we're going to look at HIV or other health issues in society. It was the same with COVID. We saw the inequities across the board impacting in different countries, whereas countries that were addressing the inequalities, and we've got so much data in the report that talks about differences in one geographic region, say if you take Eastern Southern Africa, of countries that have addressed that inequalities in wealth, in geography, where you are should not determine the quality and access to services. And you see that matches those that are doing better in response to HIV or other diseases like TB or others. It's, it's the same issues that we need to look at across. And that's where HIV is at the forefront often of trying to change some of the systems that, and we're not narrowly just looking at a biomedical response. You've got to look at this broader context. So when you talk then about integrating a focus on gender into the work, it's not just paying attention to particular challenges then of women and girls, but also bringing men deliberately into that conversation and understanding how those dynamics can affect social roles and attitudes about health and health-seeking behavior and, and all the different elements that structure access to, to services. And there are different issues for men. We often see men don't access health services early enough. You know, and so programs that are designed for men are important in the same areas. Uh, voluntary male circumcision is a, a critical tool and there's been knockbacks and, and slowdowns because of COVID on that. You know, there are other issues that need to be addressed in men's lives that get them into treatment. Because if they're on treatment and adherent, then sexual transmission might occur either. So you reduce risk to them and to other people as well. well I'm going to ask you about people having the role of, of self-testing that has become, I know there were a number of sessions, I think UNAIDS and WHO released a new brief around self-testing and I know there are a number of, of initiatives that have focused on adolescents where people have, have really embraced the idea of self-testing. And I know not too long ago, the recommendations were you had to talk to a trained counselor and get you know, an additional appointment to get more information. And so I just wanted to ask you, was it the, the pandemic that really kind of facilitated this move towards self-testing or you know, what's driving that and what do you see as the benefits of self-testing in, in the current context and in particular for these particularly vulnerable populations? If I break that question into two parts, let me address the first part about COVID and impact. Now, COVID was a crisis for all countries. In that crisis, we saw some really amazing innovation and responses. That could be a home delivery of medications to get around the fact that you couldn't go to a clinic with lockdowns, right? And that's all different types. It was prevention commodities, PrEP, a whole different model in different countries around that um, treatment, opioid substitution or opioid agonist therapy for people who are dependent on drugs, home deliveries, and different whole different models. It might be multi-month dispensing, which was on policy but not in practice in many places. COVID has spurred the implementation. We need to see that sustained and maintained as we go forward. Going to self-testing, it's a critical tool. It's been around. I've been in India and saw the Hamsafar Trust doing online self-testing to people whose lives were too busy to go to clinics or they needed to hide some aspect of their life, often their sexuality in a conservative environment or just not knowing friends. Right? And, and this is where the technologies can make such difference. It's the same when we talk about pre-exposure prophylaxis, PrEP. It's pill-based right now. But if you can have a long-acting PrEP uh, commodity there, 
if I'm a young gay man in a conservative country, I can go and get an injection once every two months. I don't have to explain to my family why am I taking a pill. And same with self-testing. This is why the technologies are critical to addressing some of the rights issues, how to help people get around the barrier. In the old days, if I had to go to a centre and front up government or community or a managed centre, people could know if you're in a, an area why. It's not hard to work it out, right? no matter how you try and shield it. If I can get a test at home and test myself, it helps me with my protection. It helps me understand when I might need to access a health service around treatment issues. And it provides anonymity. It can be done online. The virtual space is the other dynamic shift, and we're hearing that in the conference, that goes hand in hand with this. It means that I can access services that I need with the privacy that's got to be protected as part of it by going online to somebody to access information. We've seen this in places as like Vietnam, where they show 25% of young men that never accessed a regular health service were going online to find out information and then getting test kits and doing other things with it. The other exciting thing of the conference is test kit of a dollar, a self-test kit of one dollar. Now, it's still high. This week, yeah. It's just during been, the conference. Yeah, okay. um, the announcement during the conference. It's pre-qualified WHO. The price may be higher for some, but it's a dollar. It's a big reduction compared to the normal price for them. That's the other critical issue with all of these new technologies. We've got to get the long-acting prep at a price that's affordable too, programmatically or for individuals. So that's important. But self-testing helps with the human rights issue. It helps with the people making judgments about their own lives and their own health and not being judged by people stigma and discrimination you face. I've been to so many clinics. If I was getting an HIV test, before I get the results, I can tell the results by the colour of the file. Mm-hmm. Right? I've seen this in countries. You go, well, and you're sitting in a public space. Right? Actually, I was tested once in Thailand, and they called out my name and told me the results in front of other people. I'm going, well, interesting. It was a, a regular health checker. Yeah. And it's like, okay, now what would happen if you were a young person who was vulnerable to a whole range of other things? You know, that will keep you away. So that's where self-testing is a powerful new tool. So with self-testing, you've also mentioned uh, an online interface, at least for some of it. And is there concern that that will create kind of a divide for people who don't have good access to digital technologies? Or is this something that you can kind of do in different ways? With all of these, we're talking about a menu of options, right? And young people today, of course, are socializing online. Right. So first thing they all want is a mobile phone. Right. And in some countries, people have more than one device. And I've asked in a country once why they were seeing rising numbers of men who have sex with men it's because of infections. And I said, if you're not, what you're seeing is people are able to contact each other. If you have to go to a public space, a bar or something, many people wouldn't go in the society they were living in. And so I was explaining to the health professionals that it's actually because people have the anonymity of the mobile phone. And so you can close the app. Nobody sees the app if other people have access to your phone. But in some countries, people have laptop and more than one phone. Others don't have access to the internet. So you have to have a different model there. And even within one country, that's one of the inequalities of modern technology, let alone other issues. So in a rural area, you're going to have a different model if people don't have access to the internet. But phone connections... That's in most places. And so that's the power of the virtual space that needs to be positively exploited. So you take out your phone and you connect with the server. And you've got a private conversation with someone and you can do it in a private place at your time. And if you're working, it means you don't have to take time off to go to a clinic and get tested. And we saw really innovative models before where you'd have twilight testing clinics. So it's after work rather than during the normal public health clinic office hours. 
Now you can just do it at home at, at any time. It's like a call center. And so that's that's the dynamic shift that can improve health outcomes for people. So I want to turn back to something you mentioned at, at the beginning. It's really the situation in Ukraine. And I know there have been some sessions focused on some of the researchers who, who've been working there, but you were just there, I think, last week. Yes. And you know, just wanted to ask you to reflect on what you've seen in terms of key populations there, their access to services over the course of the conflict. What were you hearing in your meetings with, with leaders and with people looking for access to necessary medicines or working to provide those to others? And what are you really thinking about over the next like six to 12 months of, you know, based on what you've heard? Well, there are a number of different things. And of course, it's a changing situation in Ukraine and, and we can't know what trajectory it's going to take. But the first was the trauma and the human impact driving into Ukraine from Moldova, the damage to buildings, to people's homes, the sporadic nature of it, the destruction of public health infrastructure, clinics, etc. There was clearly targeting in some of the approaches. So there was that first. And then you meet people and see how their lives are impacted. We're working with a whole range of organisations there and are supporting them. They are in the lead. That's a critical impact that I saw was the resilience and the power of the civil society response. Working with the US government PEPFAR program, with the Global Fund for AIDS, TB and Malaria, we are able to secure, and with the World Health Organization and national partners, we were able to secure ARV treatment for 12 months. Get it into the country as well. That was a challenge. That's there, right? So that's one part. But how do you make sure it gets to the people? Some of the people are in temporarily occupied territories, unable to move. They're in bunkers. They're hiding in, in cellars. How do you make sure? The amazing resilience of the community response in Ukraine was the most important and telling thing for me. The investment in the community and their role. They are crossing the fire line, and some of them have lost their lives in making sure the drugs get to their friends, their communities, the people that they are partnered with. It's ARVs, but it's also opioid agonist therapy. So they were even supporting people. Government had done some preparation with multi-month dispensing to help people. That's helped people who have had to be evacuated out or are internally displaced, gone to another country. They took up to three months supply of treatment with them. So they helped them one part of their lives. The real challenge is the parts that the big programs don't support. It's not a short-term crisis that people are going through. So there's the psychosocial, the mental health challenges. There's the daily survival issues. And, and we've been working with the partners there, the small grassroots organisations that are supporting people who are now in Kiev or other parts of the country away from their homes to make sure they've got access to some of the basics from shelter through to support whilst they're trying to re-establish some form of normality in their life. The other inspiring thing was the programmes. You've got this going on, this war. At the same time, talking about reforms in the implementation of the program and how to sustain the program. And there's obviously real challenges on the economy, on the budget for the Ministry of Health. And so there's going to be a priority for international partners to sustain and support them, how they can have their public health response, including HIV and TB. That will mean a different model of funding. But at the same time, how do we support the ordinary person uh, living with HIV or a member of key population who's at risk? And that funding needs to be supported direct to the grassroots who are showing that they can deliver it. And we saw great examples. Some of the highest burden HIV and TB are in the temporarily or newly occupied territories or the non-government control. How does support to services to be maintained to people? This is communities working in partnership with government and other partners to make sure that works. 
But and the impact in Moldova. I also visited Moldova, one of the poorest countries in Europe. But they've opened their arms and their hearts, their homes. People are staying in their homes. Now this is not going to be six months. Children need access to education. This is going to be a long term issue, the rebuilding of the infrastructure, different types of infrastructure. We've been talking at the conference about mobile infrastructure because you can't rebuild a building not knowing what's going to happen next week or the month after in terms of the conflict. So having different portable facilities, some of the basic things, and, and we were providing at the outset, and UNAIDS is not a major funder, but we were providing money to get portable generators, laptops where infrastructure was destroyed so they could take it with them into a bunker or wherever they needed to be. So it, we need to see flexibility in the programs as well to support community response as well as the government. So it sounds like you were in Ukraine last week and you've come to Montreal. You probably have additional travel on your horizon after this, but you know, wanted to ask you just what are kind of the top two or three messages that you really hope people will take away from Montreal and really apply as they, as they look toward you know, the, the second half of this year? And- There's so many different levels. First, I think, is the important message of the report in danger and what that means. We need to understand when we're talking about preparing for pandemics or responding to pandemics, we've had COVID, a new one that's come along. But at the same time, we can't neglect the major epidemics that we're dealing with, the pandemic of HIV, tuberculosis. We've got to make sure the investments are there, including to fully fund the global fund, because that's a critical vehicle to support country programs. So that has to be essential as long as uh, supporting the partners that work to enable the global fund. And that's why the wake-up call is there. Don't get complacent. Don't take your eye off. Or we'll see rising epidemics, as we're seeing in parts of the world or in, in particular countries that we're doing well. Another one is coming together after four years and people working online in Zoom or whatever the platforms are. It's not the same as the dynamic discussion. That You have a formal session, there's presentations, in the debate that goes on in the corridors and people take that away about how they can change their programs. It's that South-South learning, as it's called. It's the cross-fertilization of knowledge and challenging. And I was really pleased to see challenging of all of us in the opening of the conference to remember there's always things that have been neglected or dropped or new things that we have to focus on. And that's why these conferences are important. So, you know, making sure we're looking at advanced uh, HIV disease issues in the mix, how to sustain the programs. But the domestic resourcing is critical alongside the international funding. And how do we look at supporting countries deal with the impact of COVID on their economies and their health budgets, as well as new impacts and the crises, food crisis that going to impact on some countries and therefore the communities that are affected by uh, HIV from the war in Ukraine as well. So there's much more to be done, but there's also the optimism and we're seeing the science, the discussion on the long-acting injectables. That's a new thing. On the ring, as it's called, the Verapin ring. These are critical options that change the dynamic and the power for the individuals to protect themselves and others. U equals U is the other one I'd really like to emphasize. Undetectable equals untransmissible. So if I'm able to suppress the virus in my body by maintaining my adherence to treatment. I can't pass on the virus sexually. That's a powerful message to me as an individual that I'm not a vector of disease. I can protect myself, my family, the people I love, the people I have sex with, and it's not transmissible. It's also a major prevention issue for society. So we're talking about a whole new difference in understanding and human rights issues related to it. There's such a mix around this. This is a powerful message. This conference is amplified. We've got to get that out much louder and much clearer across countries so that 
people see a reason to get in early into treatment to protect their own health and the health of others. So really, we've had coming together, as you said, the first time in four years. I mean, San Francisco, Oakland was online, but it's hard to have disruptive activism online in the same kind of way that, you know, people can really call attention to issues on a stage. You know, we've really had a coming together of researchers, policymakers, activists, and advocates having a chance to learn from each other in formal sessions, but really talk among themselves. And, and challenge each other. And that's always been the difference here. The conferences for AIDS have always brought that full mix together. You don't have separate conferences just for clinicians and separate meetings for policymakers. They're in the same room. They're challenging each other. And on panels, you have the full mix. And hearing from young people, that's the dynamic for the future issues too, like the virtual platforms that people are using, but young people and their needs. We've got a different epidemic going on in many countries with new waves of infection potential amongst young people. How do young women and adolescent girls, they've got to be at the table to talk about their issues. You can't have people like myself talking about that. You don't have the right set of experiences to, to bring to those discussions. So that's what's always been different about AIDS conference. So you have that dynamic and that challenges people's thinking from where they come from, their perspectives. Well, Eamon Murphy, Deputy Executive Director of UNAIDS, thank you very much for coming to speak with me today and good luck for the, the next couple of days of the conference and for your work over the next year as well. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to AIDS Existential Moment. To learn more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page.